When I was a child, I walked about two-thirds of a mile to school and back home twice a day. I remember learning about our country, learning that we had a democracy. As we used to say on the playground, it's a free country. You can't make me do that. And it was understood as a fait accompli that America is a free country, period, once and forever. The matter had been, the matter had been settled. Next. It was kind of like folk who, des- who designate truly insightful people as being enlightened, as though they had arrived at a certain level of consciousness, some sort of psychic plateau or emotional plateau from which there's no descent, and that henceforth their lives were copacetic and without problem. Now, this is nonsense. No one's like that. One always has work to do on themselves. Similarly, democracy is not something that once accomplished has been forever achieved. No. Democracy, as Mike said, is not a spectator sport. It is always up for grabs, always in balance, always requiring vigilance to keep it alive, healthy, and thriving. That is what I want to preach on this morning. In the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, our country was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all people are created equal. Liberty and equality. Two equal foundational aspects of our government. And it's a good formula. Curtail liberty or promote inequality, and the government will become increasingly unstable, as is documented in the Old Testament, and as we have learned in the years leading up to, during, and immediately following the Civil War, as the country became less and less free for many, and uh, more and more more unequal economically, less equity, and more um, unstable politically as a result. We build up equity and encourage more freedom, like the period between 1933 and 1978. You could make the argument the period between 1914 and 1978, and we become unified as a people and strong enough to win the Cold War and to win the space race while leading the global economy. As my dad, a Republican businessman, used to say, a rising tide raises all ships. As why sharing the wealth broadly across across the economy helps everybody do better. The wealthy, the middle class, even the poor. And the economy thrives. And it was the operative default position, this formula, that got America out of the Depression through the Second World War and with the fall of the Berlin War 32 years ago this Tuesday into the role of supreme global superpower. Without fear, non-perial, they say. Though President Washington wearied of political parties, they soon came into being and have been jockeying for power 
ever since. His fellow uh, James Madison, acknowledged as the father of the Constitution, worked with fellow Virginian Thomas Jefferson to unite agricultural and rural interests in opposition to the mercantile interests of the more urban, artisanal North. And they were remarkably successful, Jefferson, Madison, and the Virginians, beating their rivals in all but four presidential terms between our founding and the outbreak of the Civil War. That's over three times as many slave members of the slaveocracy who were chief executive than not. This ultimately, at the, the slaveocracy, it all built up to the slaveocracy, which imposed their own and that group of tyrants, really, or would-be tyrants, imposed their unequal, unfree vision of what the country's founders had thought sought to establish. It was such a bloodletting, the Civil War, and so collectively traumatic that despite the high cost that had been paid, our people, or most of them anyway, could not maintain the high resolve required to sustain their freedom and a semblance of equality that was tried and abandoned uh, after the administration of Ulysses Grant. Multiculturalism retrenched back into white supremacy. In the South, this was much more structured to inflict fear and terror with the lack of access to job opportunities and wealth accumulation for non-whites were ubiquitous everywhere across the land. The combined effort of Teddy Roosevelt's progressive Republicans and Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal and LBJ's Great Society Democrats during the 20th century sought to alleviate the worst inequities and broaden opportunities that greater democracy, that is a more perfect union, might be achieved. And serious progress was achieved, progress that began to slow and then reverse itself, beginning in the middle of the Jimmy Carter administration. Most indices of comparative pay and comparative wealth accumulation have been heading downward ever since for all but, what, the fortunate fifth of the population at the top of the pile. In 1989, I became a founding member of Unitarian, for Unitarian Universalists for a Just Economic Community. We organized to help demystify economic policy and help our UU members understand and resist the trickle-down University of Chicago conservative economic orthodoxy advocated by the neocons in the George H.W. Bush administration with all their imperial adventurism. I applied for and was awarded grants to arrange seminars and sponsor colloquia. At General Assembly in 1997 and 98, we passed the most comprehensive social and economic justice resolution since the 1917 Universalist Declaration on Human Rights. Slowly, over the two decades since, our denomination has moved progressively toward a more radical stance with respect to economic justice. It's understandable that people are reluctant to embrace radical economics 
Carol and I are bit players when it comes to accumulating assets. Still, we are proud that we have managed to put some things together, but both of us, as our mothers often cautioned us, are wary of letting others take control of it. We're generous and have communitarian spirits, but like many ESUCers, many UUs, I'm sure, we are not spendthrift or just totally uh, signing up for uh, um, letting the state uh, be in charge of all economic matters in people's lives. One of my great heroes is George Washington, and for a lot of reasons. One reason I so admire the revolutionary general is that in 1776, he was, he was one, perhaps the wealth, richest people in the United States, or in what became the United States in the 13 colonies. Not the, he was not the smartest of the revolutionaries, um, but despite his relative affluence and his stolid kind of down to earth practicality, Washington had a vision of democracy that once imbued into his being, he never abandoned nor wavered in its support, joining his revolutionary comrades in pledging his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor, as did all of they, to the overthrow of the established order. Madison produced the plan, drawing from rough proto the plan as our constitutional plan, drawing from rough prototypes, both from antiquity and from the contemporaneous Iroquois Federation. The Constitution was designed with the human lust for power clearly and always in mind, and how to prevent it from turning self-rule into misrule, the separation of powers, and the tiered federalism, local, state, national, with multiple power centers, state capitals and commercial hubs, as well as the national seat of power in what eventually became Washington, D.C. Over the decades and centuries, we've done our best to carry on with the democratic experiment, as my paternal grandmother proudly called it, the experiment of self-rule, as Lincoln called it, echoing the Unitarian abolitionist clergyman Theodore Parker, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And there have been times and occasions when the experiment was truly imperiled, for sure. I am not an alarmist. I am, at the core of things, also a theist, believing that the creative spirit, the force that through the green stem drives the flower, in the center of everything, is in the center of everything. And all ways will be. I believe that. But sometimes, a lot of times indeed, that spirit can feel pretty obscure. And when it looks rationally, the, and when it look, when, when, like when we look at it rationally, global warning, nuclear Armageddon, the doomsday clock, all of this looks worse and worse, ticking ever closer to Armageddon. First of all, I'm not an alarmist. First, do not forget all the beauty and grace that surrounds you everywhere, every day, right out this window. 
Feed your soul with beauty and art and meaningful relationships. You will need these in the days ahead. And now read the Washington Post's three-part thousands of words article on the prelude to January 6th, the insurrection, and the ongoing aftermath. It's dozens of pages, but I'm going to make sure that everyone in the church gets either an electronic or a hard copy of this important report. When it appeared that Congress would not convene and empower a nonpartisan committee to investigate the assault on our democratic way of life, the Post appointed 75 investigative reporters to analyze former President Trump's efforts to delegitimize the last election and sow seeds of mistrust and no confidence in fair elections among his supporters. He began this in 2016, lying about election integrity and fomenting increased suspicion among the electorate. I remember reading a book by Nobel laureate Sinclair Lewis back in high school titled, It Can't Happen Here. It's about the rise of an American demagogue who was elected president inciting fear and promising drastic social and economic reforms while promoting patriotism and so-called traditional values. I also read a couple of other books by Lewis. He kind of scared me. Main Street and Babbitt. And I have to say, he perfectly nailed the unimaginative rah-rah parochialism of the American Midwest and its people, of which I must admit I was sown. <laughs> but I do not, but I did not think, I had not thought in high school or until fairly recently that it can't happen here was in any way accurate. I didn't think that Americans were that gullible or manipulable. Now I am increasingly less sure. I've read a lot of history and I've read a lot about religion. I know about amazing popular delusions and I know about cults and cultic behavior. Former President Trump's niece, Dr. Mary Trump, is a board-certified clinical psychologist who's written about her uncle's unbalanced emotional state of mind. She reveals that he's extremely fearful of being exposed as a loser and a fraud and has projected his fear she holds onto the entire country. All his protestations of having the election stolen from him are indeed absurd. It was highly observed and uh, repeatedly we are told President Biden won 81 million votes and dozens more electoral votes than his has-been loser opponent. Trump is toast. But as his fragile ego is so desperately threatened, he is in turn now threatening to pull the whole American Democratic House down. It looks as though the 2020 election may simply be a prelude to 22 and 24. If that is so, then we must be ready to prevent it. Unscrupulous state legislatures are in the process of election reform laws that actually make voting harder and less free than in recent past elections. This cannot be allowed to happen. Thank goodness our scrupulous GOP Washington Secretary of State, Kim Wyman, 
has just been nominated by President Biden to sort through all this on the federal level and to make voting simpler, more convenient, and completely secure. Former President Trump and his allies began all this craziness a year and a half ago when he released a torrent of preemptive attacks on the integrity of the country's voting systems. The attacks he made ultimately led to the January 6th rampage inside the Capitol building, the worst desecration of the iconic complex since 1814 when it was burned by British forces during the War of 1812. Five people died in or immediately following the attacks, and 140 police officers were attacked. What the Washington Post series makes clear is that the insurrection was not a spontaneous act nor an isolated event. It was a battle in a broader war over truth and over the future of American democracy. I'm quoting the Post. Since then, the forces behind the attack have magnified. Mr. Trump has been emboldened, sustaining his big lie about his election defeat and demanding more restrictive laws and investigations of the 2020 results that have repeatedly been affirmed by ballot reviews and the courts. A deep distrust in election integrity is shaking the foundation of the democratic experiment, the shared conviction that our national leaders are freely and fairly elected has been shaken. In the months before January 6th, President Trump rallied his supporters to Washington, many with the intent to commit violence. On that day, he hunkered down with his aides for almost three hours and a quarter and resisted repeated pleas to stop them. And ever since that day, Menacing threats and disinformation spread rest relentlessly across the airwaves and through the social media. Oh, my gosh. This is what I mean by democracy being up for grabs. It is imperiled, and it's a potentially fatal illness. As I said at the beginning, I'm not an alarmist. I'm not trying to scare you but I'm trying desperately to make clear, I worked in the Capitol building. These are not ordinary times, and Donald Trump and the modern GOP are not your typical would-be autocrats. They are anti-American, and they are potentially traitoring, being traitors. Their assault on our system of government was, and now appears, but a preview of their game plan for 2024 and beyond if our fellow citizens allow it without serious resistance. Serious resistance is very important, and it must begin if we are to maintain our political rights and freedoms. So may it be, and may it be so. Amen, and blessed be.